Hello and welcome to Whose Truth, Whose Power, a six-part podcast in partnership with BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity. I'm Suzanne Allen, a cultural thinker, and I'm going to be exploring leadership and other topics through the lens of Indigenous wisdom. Over the next six episodes, I'll be talking to experts who can give us some insights into how Indigenous and First Nation wisdom can help us all consider why thinking about power from a non-Western perspective could help us, our communities, organisations and our wider society think differently. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of meeting with Cynthia Wesley Esquimo, former Vice Provost at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay and Aurelia, where she is now the Indigenous Chair on Truth and Reconciliation. So hello, Cynthia, welcome. It is so nice to be back talking to you again. But before we get into that, um, can you tell me, tell the audience what you do, what your work is about and who you are? Certainly. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. So my name is Cynthia Wesley Eskima. I'm from the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation, which is in southern central Ontario. So I'm coming to you from Canada. And I work, uh, have actually been working at Lakehead University for the last nine years, uh, some of it as a vice provost in Indigenous initiatives and now as a chair for Truth and Reconciliation. So I do a lot of work uh, with that's public. So I do a lot of public education, a lot of conversations with people about reconciliation, where we're going, uh, sometimes with other countries. I was speaking to Finland uh, last week. Uh, Finland is now launching their Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so they had a, an opening conversation, an opening panel, and we, we got to speak about the kinds of things that Canada had encountered when they were doing their own uh, process. So I do a lot of work like that. Wow, we're going to pick that up in a minute because truth and reconciliation um, since working with you has become a subject, not even close to my heart, but just it makes sense of a lot of the things that I think are missing. Um, just in case I didn't say it, I'm here in the UK. Um, so we're going to jump right in. I've got some questions. You know, when I first started working with you and then with Banff, the question that came up over and over again is what is Indigenous wisdom? And I guess also what does it mean to you? Well, I mean, that, that's such an important question, especially in the days in which we're living now. You know, after this well, I guess I'm going to say after this pandemic with, you know, hopefully that we're actually coming to a place where we're kind of done with that, but also just the response to the pandemic and how people are feeling. And this question of wisdom is a really important part of that because wisdom in the context of indigeneity is about a connection to the land. And, you know, like it, the land is us, we are the land and of course the creator. And it means having some very keen observation and acceptance of what is and what is, is what has just as happened. And it doesn't go away. It, it doesn't become unreal. It is there. We've, we've, you know, we've managed to walk our way through it. So what it is what it is, and we need to deal with it. It means walking a very straight path to get to where we're going, and 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 to understanding that you know our it's not about a reaction. It's about a response. 
and and that wisdom is it comes from deep within you so uh, it brings to mind a, a man i met who the only man i've ever met personally that was called an elder from birth like that you know the people said this he was he was born that way you know he was one of those people that just had innate wisdom and calmness and stability and strength and you know a lot of us believe that when we meet people like that that they were sent to remind us of the importance of language you know whatever our language history might be you know ceremony you know care for others care for ourselves being of service you know understanding that we are connected and i think that that's really what it's all about is that is that sense of uh, of holistic everything we are part of it it is part of us and, uh, and, and it doesn't go away. You know, we kind of push it away if we're in a certain kind of a state and we think we're alone and we think that it's all about us. But there's a different kind of reality when you understand what Indigenous wisdom actually means. So one of, uh, one of the questions that comes aside from me, and so for anyone listening, um, part of the reason I do what I do is that I've managed to get to a point of sometimes asking the questions that other people don't even know they want to answer. So I understand this idea of Indigenous wisdom, but part of my research, for example, has about been about talking to people who come from other Indigenous communities around the world. And there seems to be a kind of a, a semi-shared understanding of beliefs and values. So is 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 that true is it that by the very definition of indigenous wisdom for example you believe that you have to consider your actions um and how they would impact those seven generations and seven ahead or are there different traditions and beliefs well there's probably some fundamental concepts that that everybody adheres to um, seven generations back and seven generations forward and being in the now. So, you know, we don't live in the past and we don't live in the future, but we are very conscious of the fact that people, we are the hope of our ancestors, that seven generations back, you know, that far back or further, people were thinking forward and, and, and preparing the place for their arrival. And it's our duty in so many fundamental ways to be assured that we're going to prepare the place for the next generations to be able to accommodate them. And that's one of the things that I think we've all fallen down on, you know, with the, with all of the things that are happening, extreme weather events, you know, the changes, you know, this rampant capitalism, this idea about having more has really created a, a problem for us when it comes to, you know, wh what happens to the next generations? What happens to my granddaughter? Never mind seven generations from now. So this idea of, of uh, how we practice and how we believe, it's centered, you know, Indigenous wisdom is centered in an entirely different place. It's not about acquisition. It's not about getting more. It's about the kind of acceptance and trust we have lost connection with, I think, and our humanity is now in question because of it. So that sense of, uh, you know, most, most cultures, I mean, I'm an anthropologist, so I've studied lots of cultures as well. Um, you know, this question of all my relations is a very important concept to how the wisdom that is inherent in indigenous peoples, the 350 million indigenous peoples globally, is very different from the concept, the westernized concept is, is all about me. You know, I want the biggest toys, I want the biggest house, I want the, you know, I need, I need to have, you know, $7 billion in my bank account before I can sleep at night. 
Now, that's not the way Indigenous people see it at all. In fact, they know you come in with nothing and you're going out with something, but the something you're going out with is not about what you've acquired in terms of material goods. It's about what you've acquired in terms of knowledge and learning and sharing and, and being and being a human being, a good you know, human being. And I think that's a very different kind of a, of a belief system. And I know it confuses people when they say, you know, well, why don't you get a job? And then you can have this and you can have that and you can have the other. And it's like, well, I already have enough. You know, indigenous peoples know what enough means. Uh, I think in a lot of Western societies, people don't know what me enough means and they always want more. And then they create this system that is like a little bit like a crack addict. It, it knows it's bad for it, but it still wants more, more and more and more. So, you know, so that's a very different kind of a, I think of a, of a belief system. And, you know, you talked wow. a little bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs before. We talked about that in the other conversation we'd had. And this idea that, you know, it's all about me and, and what I need and what I acquire. But in, in, in when Maslow took that from the Blackfoot Nation, he didn't understand that the concept was not about that. It was about culture perpetuation. How do we keep everybody going? How do we keep the language, the ceremonies, you know, the us that makes us us going? And so that's, I think, a very different orientation. Wow. So thank you. You know, there's so much that's just come out of what you've said. But there's something that literally, for me anyway, sent shivers down my spine. And I've written it down. It's the we are the hope of our ancestors. And, you know, uh, uh, for people listening to this who don't know me, I'm a black British woman born in the UK. Um, my parents come from Jamaica and Barbados, respectively. And I say that because the idea of um, interconnecting and considering your ancestors is completely, it, it, it's, it's so natural to us. Um, and I'm not sure that it's necessarily every community around the world has that same thought process. Um, I'm really interested in people, for example, who might be listening to this. And for them, the notion is you're born, you die and you're done. And whether or not you believe in before or after isn't the issue. The issue is whether you think that actually you are connected and therefore you are the hope of your ancestors. And if you, for me, hearing you say that immediately makes me think about indigenous wisdom being about the most complete me and having a relationship with with a lot of other people the other thing you talked about was this idea of enough and you know in part of my day job I work with people communities and organizations to think of what their values are and we talk about care and we talk about enough but that's so relative what's enough to one person isn't enough to other I think, you know, I, I already know that we could be doing this for a big three hours and we've got no more than 30 minutes. So I'm going to ask you this. How, how does this way of living a mess belief system, how does it impact your daily living and how you work on a personal level, not a professional level? I encourage people to join me and Cynthia. We're doing a second podcast, but for the moment, this is about personal. How does it, how does it impact your everyday day being well <clears throat> certainly you know the idea of, of, of acquiring or, or or accepting the gift of wisdom means that you have to pay attention 
<laughs> you know, you're igniting all of your senses to what is. Not what we hope and not what we want and not what we think, but we embrace what is right in front of us now. Whether what it, you know, what that is, is accepting an important teaching from somebody, even if it, it was a rebuke, because teachings can are not always wonderful things. Sometimes, they, you know, they make you go, oh, yeah, I guess I needed to learn that. You know, the question of being brought back down to earth when you sort of start sailing off because, you know, you did this or you achieved that and, you know, and being grounded, you know, understanding, you know, who's responsible to meet our needs. We are. You know, lots of people go through life going, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs. When, in fact, you know, the realization that the only one that's going to be able to do that is yourself changes everything. All of a sudden, there's no blame, no shame, no want. There's just acceptance and grace, right? You get that peace because you realize I'm in charge of what I do, what I learn, and where I go. And then the other piece I think that's really important is, is understanding with wisdom, you have to let go. You know, you have to let go of certain kinds of things in, in, in certain kinds of ways. So I was listening to Marianne Tremonte this morning talk about being in a domestic violence situation when she was very young, her first marriage, and how she let that color, that one year of her life, color her entire life since. You know, the guilt and shame she carried, you know, all the way through till she's, you know, an older woman now. And I thought, no, that's not wise. Wise is saying, what did I learn from that? You know, how, you know, where am I today? And what, and, you know, and how is that informing me? How is that creating an authentic voice, an authentic experience? You know, how am I, how is it, how is it helping my existence? And what am I taking out of that? What's the gift? And I think that that's a really important consideration when you're thinking about being wise is taking that learning with you. And when you leave, right, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly that you picked up along the way is hugely important to your humanity. So you don't bury your past. You don't bury your thoughts. You don't bury your experiences. You keep them as your guidebook for your life. You know, what's interesting about that for me is, um, so anyone listening might not know that I have a lot of differences. So I have PTSD and um, I have dyslexia, a lot of things that mean that I experience and see the world differently. And at the moment, we're doing this research on what it means to be a senior leader, in brackets, I founded my own company, um, when you have these differences, because I need a different, I need, I need to have a different format for me to succeed. And just occasionally well, quite a lot at the moment, I end up sitting here going, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that because I'm forced all the time to confront the things that I, in brackets, can't do. And actually this idea of wisdom and indigenous wisdom and learning as you go along, the thing is, it's not, for me, this would help because then it's not just me sitting here thinking, what am I learning I can't do this or I can do this or does it matter? Because if everyone else around you is doing that same thing, is everyone else is kind of reflecting and there seems to be a sense of kindness in there. And if everyone else is able to go, this is a learning moment and I'm going to carry this with me and I'm not ashamed of it, that changes. That changes so much. Like for me, but I can imagine for lots of other people um i wanted to step back a sec right so when we were prepping this and when i was prepping some previous work we've done i kind of casually use this word western or indigenous and and so then i started to get kind of a bit like specific and i was like well is it western ver you know or indigenous or is it 
indigenous and non-indigenous how do you how do you use that is it indigenous and non where does the western come into it can you explain that a bit I guess I think we use all, I mean, I've used all, like depending on the circumstances that I'm in. I mean, if we're talking about society and economy and capitalism, I use Western because Western is, is sort of an accepted terminology. You hear it often when we're speaking of the East and the West and the differences between the two. But when I'm talking about people, I would be more likely to say Indigenous and non-Indigenous because I don't like to say, you know, white people or, you know, you know, there's black people and there's Asian people, you know, like we, it gets a bit complicated because everybody has different circumstances that they're confronting and that they're dealing with in their lifetimes. So I'd rather just say non-indigenous and be somewhat inclusive. And, and then if we if we move into, so I'm going to be doing a, a, a conversation um, next Friday on Black History Month and talking about the similarities between indigenous and Afro-Canadian people. And, and that's the term that they use. And uh, so that's going to be an interesting conversation as well. So it's you know where it depends on where you're at and what's 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 on the table. I think that guides your your you know your terminology. So um, I think, gosh, this I I just wanted to pick up and run with the similarities between the Afro Canadians and the Indigenous community, because I think this is part of what draws me to try and have these conversations with you is there something I'm grappling with that seems so innately part of my history even though I grew up in quite a kind of you know I went to an all-white school I didn't necessarily roll with a lot of my family but I can feel it every time you talk it feels like a shared history but I'm not going to take us on that path. We'll have to get funding for another podcast to do that. What I am going to do is really now start to think about a couple of things. Um, as we move into wrapping up, I think we've probably another 10 minutes or so. A couple of things I want to pick back on. Can you just explain to us the, the Maslow hierarchy? Because I think people are like Maslow. I think I know that. And can you just tell us a little bit about the Truth and Reconciliation project in Finland and then this is going to be mostly you talking I want to just think about a bit more about really like three things those of us that are not indigenous could learn and benefit and I know we've touched on that so to go back Maslow tell us that story well yeah Maslow was a anthropologist who worked with the Blackfoot Nation in the well, probably in the 1940s when the Blackfoot Nation was still you know, very very powerful and strong, uh, and and he sat in. I mean, they you know indigenous peoples were quite trusting. They still are, I think, uh, trusting of people coming and wanting to know something about their culture and their ceremony and their languages. And and so they shared with him the their their teepee teach. They call them teepee teachings. So if you look at it from you know from side to like from the side, it looks like a triangle. It really does, but but it's actually a circle. So, you know, it's looking down into the teepee, not looking at it from the side. But Maslow took, looked at it from the side. And, and out of the, what he, the conversations he had, he understood, you know, that there was a need for the basics. You need to have food and shelter and water and all those kinds of things. And you need to have education and learning and, you know, up the, up the hierarchy. But the problem was that he put self-actualization at the top. He said, you have, you have all of these things then you become self-actualized and, you know, then you become, you know, that 1%, you know, at the top. Whereas from the indigenous perspective, no, it wasn't about that at all. It was about actually understanding that you, you have those things. Those are inherent in your, in your, in your being alive because 
the Blackfoot Nation, like a lot of nations across the, the, the country, you know, really around the world, know how to look after their own. I mean, nobody is starving and nobody's in jail. And nobody, you know, there, there's, there's, there's things that happen to accommodate humanity's uh, foibles, I guess we might say, <laughs> trickster stuff. But they, they take care of that. But the idea of the, of the, uh, is that you actually self, you you come into the, into the world self actualized? You already have everything you need, and the goal is not to be about yourself, but to be about the culture, to be about the people. You know, you're you to be of service, and that's that cultural perpetration that you're about. You're about uh, you know learn you know knowing the language and knowing the rules and knowing the laws. And those are inherent. They're not written down. They're not codified in a book somewhere. It's the way you live. And there was just a misunderstanding there. So Maslow did his hierarchy. He became famous for it. But it was his graduate students that went back to the Blackfoot Nation probably in the 60s or 70s. Alan Maslow was too old to do it himself. And they said, you know what? You took this from the Blackfoot Nation. You need to own that. And you need to you need to tell people about that. So people have subsequently you know, written about it and talked about it. Of course, the Blackfoot Nation was well aware of that. But it's now become an academic conversation because it was taken out and, and, and lifted, I guess it would be the best word to use. So it's an important thing for people to understand. You come in complete. You're not an incomplete human being. We don't have to make you be who you are. You are already you. Education is not about putting things in. It's about drawing things out and drawing out all of the best of who you are and, and, and all of the, you know, the, the, the foibles and the pieces that make you you. But you are part of of all, all of the rest of it, all my relations means that you are part of it. You don't have to well, earn your way. Yeah, that. So that that story always like moves me on really lots of levels. One, like I did my masters, I lecture in university. There's no way that you could really go and do this research without crediting where it came from and writing it up as you saw, even if you want to change it yourself. So that just feels like a really big learning. Um, Remember when when Maslow was doing his work though, at the time that he was doing his work, it was not a requirement that you took what you took back. So he didn't have to, he could write whatever he wanted to for the academic community and they would accept it. He didn't have to take that work back to the Blackfoot nation and say, is this okay? Did I get that right? So and that I guess has, I, that's changed, right? Now you have to take it back. And, and that is an, a development and it feels like that layers on how we could better live life today. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to tease the audience. We're going to get people to come onto podcast too. We're going to push the Finland truth and reconciliation bit over to the leadership parts that we can finish here on time. And we are going to spend the last few minutes really summarizing and thinking about um, what it is that, uh, that, that we think people can take from this. Although, of course, we invite people to take whatever works for them. I think, you know, the thing for me, I go back, is we are the hope of our ancestors and I think that really grounds me and it underpins absolutely everything that you've said. And the second thing for me is that we're born enough. And for any of us who've done any sort of therapeutic intervention, 
I suspect a lot of that work is about just understanding that we've come to this world enough. And if that is what I today can take away from, from Indigenous wisdom and apply it to my everyday, that for me is amazing. Um, Cynthia, what would you add to that that you'd like people to take away? Just the, the, the reality that they don't, that they can let it go. You know, people carry stuff for far too long and it, 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 they're angry, they're sad, you know, they're, they're guilty, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're all these things because of something that happened that had really nothing to do with their actions. You know, if you were sexually assaulted as a child, that was not your fault. And yet we carry that until, you know, most people don't even speak to that until they're in their mid thirties. So they're carrying it through all their relationships. They're carrying it through their childbearing years. You know, they're handing it on. So if you're going to be the hope of your ancestors and you're going to be the, the hope of the future, then you're going to let that go so that you don't have to hand it on. You know, that sins of the father thing where, you know, you didn't deal with it because you hid it away. So now your kids have to deal with it. You know, put deal with it. Face it. Be mindful about it. Let it go. It was a teaching and it is important. It doesn't mean that you have to forget it. I just mean you don't have to carry it around with you every day and let it become the lens by which you see yourself and you think other people see you. It is not necessary. Wow. I did not expect to be able to go so deep and so beautiful in a 25-minute podcast. And so I'm going to give a shout out to our producer, Isaac, who was like, you can do it, Suzanne, you can do it. And I was like, we can't. So I'm going to close up now. I am going to say, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. And I didn't say this to you in the briefing. So if you need to scrabble around, that's fine. Where can people follow you? Where can people uh, read more about what you do? I think we've seen you on Instagram uh, and possibly Twitter. What are your handles? Well, you, you just have to type my name into Google and I come up with there you go yeah there you go that is it and for anyone listening um you'll be able to see the full spelling of cynthia's name in the intro for me um as ever you can reach me at at aline and for everything thank you so much cynthia your time you are always so busy you made time for us we really appreciate it um i'm going to finish it off with this line we are the hope of our ancestors goodbye And this has been Whose Truth, Whose Power. If you would like to hear more from my conversation with Cynthia, you can tune in to us exploring another topic in the following episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, this has been Whose Truth, Whose Power. Catch you next time. One last thing though. If you want to find out more about the work I'm doing on power, just find me on my socials. My handle is at Aline And. A-double-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. Bye. Whose Truth, Whose Power was produced in partnership with the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity and Rai Moran, Associate University Librarian at the University of Victoria. All six episodes were funded by the British Council, Farnham Maltings, the High Commission of Canada in the UK and Canada Council for the Arts. A massive thank you to them for funding us and enabling us to do this. The podcasts were hosted and created by me, Suzanne Aline, and produced by the super awesome Isaac Hustable.
They were edited by Reuben Huxtable and project managed by the fabulous SJ Martins. For any information or more information about the topics discussed today, head over to allaboutpower.com or aleneand.com. Or if you fancy the socials, we are on at aleneand, A-L-L-E-Y-N-E, A-N-D. Thank you so much to everyone involved and thanks to you for listening.